This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com. You are listening to The Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about the psycho-spiritual and psychosocial aspects of -of end-of-life care. You can find our podcast everywhere you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes and any platform you listen to the show from. And now, here are your hosts, Joe and Saul. Thank you very much for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Today we are talking with Enoch. Enoch, could you please introduce yourself to our audience? Yes, uh, my name is Enoch Aguilar. I was born in a humble community in uh, in Mexico. My state home is Chiapas, and that's a that's a rural community where I grew up. My, my father had a coffee farm, and so pretty much we grew up uh, running between the uh, coffee plants. <laughs> it was beautiful, uh, uh, honestly, because uh, uh, we live in a freedom place, so we don't have, uh, we never close our uh, home doors uh, uh, until night, until we're going to go to sleep, so our home was open all the time, mm. so we, we were free, we were, you know, we were very happy, and, and one time, so, oh, my wife asked me one time, you know, do you consider that you was a poor child? And I say, no, I, I never talk on poverty. Uh, I taught on poverty until I immigrate. And I start seeing the, the huge difference between those who have money and those who don't have much money. Mm-hmm. But but in my home environment, you know, I, I never thought about, it, about that. So my childhood was, was a good childhood. So if somebody was looking at your uh, history and looked at your background and where you came from and did not understand your view of your your childhood, they would say that you were uh, in a poverty-stricken area? You know, just taking a look back, would you say that people would look at that other than who lived there? Yes, but but uh, but uh, but uh, I say I didn't see it that way. No, no, I understand that because, very because, much so. because that was everything we had because we had everything. Mm. But that so you see we, we, the, the way you looked at your history indicates how you look at life, and that's why yes. I was trying to figure out that that I mean you have such a wonderful view of your past and your and your upbringing that is, you know, I I I, I, I see images in my own mind of how you things lived. And then, because I didn't live that way. Yeah, I just think it's really cool. So at what age did you leave the farming community? I think I was like around 13 when I, because in my community, we don't have middle school. So we had the elementary school, but we don't have the middle school. So I had to move from my uh, family home to the city where I can uh, pursue my uh, middle school. It was around 13 years. And who did you live with then? Uh, I found a little, uh, because my father don't want me to go to the city. And he said, if you want to go, you go on your own. So I knew a person who gave me a job. And I started working at uh, age 13 for me to pay my 
my living and my food in the city. Wow, hello. Uh, at 13 years, you became a man and you were in the middle school and working and paying for your education. Yes. Well, I, you know, when you are a child, you don't see it that way. You see that everything is fun, everything is... Because we were, when you grew up in a farm, you work all the time. Yes, yes. You know, there is, you have responsibilities. So... You know, you always doing something. So when I move, I wasn't doing nothing different. The difference is that they give me money, and my father don't give me money, but he gave me, <laughs> you know, the the uh, place of living, food, clothes, anything I needed. So you know, I see it that that way. So I mean, I, I'm glad that you could see the silver lining. Was this normal mm-hmm. for 13 year old boys or girls to earn a living at that age? Yes. But when I finished my first year of uh, of school, the, the second year, so my dad said, you are in a stillborn, so come back home and you will travel from here to the city every day, So and I will pay you tuition. So I went back, uh, but I had to, um, to walk like two, three miles every day, um, one way to get the car who took me to the city. So that's how I finished my two years, uh, my, my my next two years of middle school. My mother, she always say, yeah, hey, you guys have to, you know, to be educated because otherwise you will be doing uh, the farming job and this is not an easy job. And, you know, my, my mother was always motivating us that direction. But I, I'm the only uh, in my family that pursue a formal education. Really? How many uh, siblings do you have? Uh, three sisters and two brothers. And you're the only one and was motivated enough to complete an education. Yes. Oh. Yes. Does that, uh, how does that sit with your siblings? Uh, well, I, I never, when I connect with my siblings, I connect with them as the uh, as the a small brother, the little brother. You're the little I brother. Never, yes, I, I never come to my family relation as an educated person, but as the little brother. Are you the youngest? I, I'm the uh, the second youngest. Okay. So that's how I manage my thing when my mother and my Father leaves, so I go home and I go as a child. I never went as a professional. In my house, I was a child, and I always behave as a child at them until the day they die. Was that is that part of the culture upbringing? I, I don't know, but I think I, I that's the way I decided because I don't want that my education break my relationship with them. Smart. Very smart. Because in many and many times, especially when I was doing my doctorate, my father said, you know, why too much education? The pastor, <laughs> he, he lives good. He lives, he has a, 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 a nice house, he has a car, has a computer, has everything. So why too much education? He, he didn't understand because he just went to the uh, to second year of 
mm-hmm. elementary school. Yeah. So he didn't know. So, and then I realized that no matter how I explained it, they will not get it. So you, uh, you were, how did you get into your faith background? Did that come from your parents as well? In, in my mother's side. Okay. My mother became a Seventh-day Adventist before I was born. So okay. practically, I, I, I become Adventist because my mother. But I left the church when I was from 13 to 18, I left the church. So when I moved to the city. And, and I started uh, seeing things that other kids do, and I wasn't uh, allowed to do. And mm-hmm. I questioned, but, but when I questioned, my mother always get mad because uh, she, she cannot explain exactly because she just was following what she was taught. And so that's why I get mad and left the church for five years. Mm-hmm. But when I was 18, I I went back to the to 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 the church and I got baptized. But usually the kids in my church they get baptized when they were nine, eleven. I I, I say no, you know, I'm gonna wait. So and I left the church and when I come back, you know, I I come back with all my energy. I became a a, a lay a preacher. I, I was an evangelist. Uh, I used to do uh, evangelist campaigns all over the communities, the, the closest communities in my in, in my region. So, yeah, at age 19, I left my home state and immigrate to the United States. In fact, I didn't finish my, my high school in Mexico. I did my GED in California. After my GED, I decided to go to uh, to become a pastor. In my church, we had to go to four years uh, uh, a college to become uh, a pastor. So I decided to, after my GED, I decided to go to Costa Rica to get my bachelor's in theology. Okay, for how long were you in Costa Rica? Four years. <laughs> You love yes. adventure, huh? <laughs> well, yes. Because, as I said, I I I think growing up in in the in the farm, I uh, I got the the free spirit. Mm. You know, I I love to travel. I love to to know other cultures, and you know, I love it. So, what did you enjoy about your time in Costa Rica? Those four years. Well, I, I pursued my, my bachelor there. I pursued my bachelor. I met my wife there. Uh, my wife, I, I met my wife in Costa Rica. And when we finished college, we got married and we're still together 21 years after that. I'm just amazed at your ability to be so adaptable, yeah, I guess, is what flexible, I'm looking for. Adapt, yeah. Yes. Uh, and especially coming, I mean, I look back again. I look back at your upbringing. This is a God-given gift that seems to me that you are you're you're quite readily to use because there's always in change. There's always fear. Did you ever have any fear about making the right choice? No, because I never see the future as uh, 
as the final goal. I, I always see my present as the final thing. You know, today is my day to enjoy. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but today is the day. So in, in that sense, I, I never uh, was scared to take decisions. And, and now as I'm getting old, it's like uh, the other day I was laughing with my wife because she was asking, asking me, what will happen if our son, who is 17 years old, decided to do exactly what you do? Would you allow him to do it? And I say, no, that's too small. <laughs> that's too small. To <laughs> You're not going to let that's him go to Costa Rica young. to go to college, huh? What's the matter with no. you, Dad? <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but the thing is that we decided that he go to Mexico to a boarding school to finish his 11 and 12 uh, um, uh, junior and senior years in Mexico in a boarding school. Is that for uh, to be understand more of the culture, or is that just because because? I I think I think uh, he needs to 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 have that experience to value things. Ah, okay. I, I think uh, he has grown with so many blessings mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that he take for uh, he take life for granted. Good observation. Uh, absolutely, yes. I think that's. Happens too many times in families. I have to go back to the where you had found yourself to be an an immigrant when you immigrated here to uh, California, and you spoke. You said you never thought of yourself as being an immigrant. Uh, that is an exceptionally uh, Wonderful understanding again of how did you have such esteem, self esteem, and such an under self understanding to fit, look, you know, to walk across the, bo- the border and belong and belong. That's it. I mean, it's just incredible. I, I, I think that I do understand the, the heart of the gospel that when we are the, ki- the children of God. We are the children of God, no matter where we are. I think that image has been in my mind. And sometimes that, that is my, my glory, but my cross as well. Because some people expect that I behave as an immigrant and I, I act as an immigrant. But at the same time, I don't see myself as an immigrant, but as a child of God living in Texas. That's Uh it. So I I, I don't see all the the political complication of being an immigrant. Are you legal? Are you not illegal? Are you resident? Are you not resident? You know, I, I pass all those stages of being an immigrant but I thought that was a natural way to, to to live in a country that is not yours. But Enoch, I mean, I think I think this goes deeper. Uh, your sense of belonging. I mean, you were thirteen when you left the farm community and went to the city and actually belonged, got a job and took yourself to middle school and studied and lived your life. So that is that was really within you. 
that sense of belonging? Is it something, is it, like you said, you know, being a child of God, your faith gave you a sense of belonging. Was that cultivated from a young age or is it something you learned from the farm community or wisdom passed on to you? I, I think that's a wisdom passed through my mother, mm. especially my mother, because my mother seems to have that spirit of adventure. Mm. There we go. With my that's mother, we went places. Mm. Not far away, but, but you know, <laughs> we move out of our, our community. Uh, sometimes we don't have money, so I say, I'm, let's go to that city and I'm going to bring some chocolate to sell in that city so that we can have money to stay there while we need we need to stay. And, and that was funny because we were door by door selling the chocolate, the homemade chocolate. Yes. And with that money, she said, that's the best way to know because we are going, you know, that's her way to see things, you know. We are knowing the city, uh, and instead of paying, they are paying us walking <laughs> in the streets. So it, it is the adventurous oh. spirit then, <laughs> where you go to a place you know you don't you know you know it's not your home, but you also know you can actually survive. So you are able yes. to balance those emotions really well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because you're being a child of God, you feel that you always belong. And so therefore you were able to live that life. Oh, I mean, it just so, your mother sounds incredible. I'm sorry that, uh, I'm glad that she's with God now, but I'm you know sorry for your loss. But, no, that's fine. And, uh, but she, boy, did she ever give you a lot of gifts. So, um, Enoch, so after your studies in uh, Costa Rica, you go there to study, you find this wife, you get married. So you came back to L.A. or to Texas. What happened next? Oh, after, when I went to Costa Rica, I decided to go with all my means. I wasn't planning to come back to the United States. Because back then, I wasn't a resident. Mm. I don't know how you call it, but I wasn't a resident. So, and I say, you know, if I go to Costa Rica and I will be a pastor, why I need to come back? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I took everything I had and I left United States. So you actually immigrated. To Costa Rica. I am, exactly. Oh. So I, I just went with all my means and, and everything. But but something happens, you know. When I finished my bachelor's, uh, I didn't get a job in Central America because I was Mexican. Hmm. Because, because within my church, there is so many policies. If you are... Um, from another country, you get so many benefits. And when because they don't want to give you the benefit, they rather not to hire somebody who is not from that country. You know, that, that's a political thing. But 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 I decided to come back to Mexico. And I went to Mexico and I I didn't know the the we have a Seventh Day Adventist College in Mexico, mm. 
so I went to see my parents. I stayed there like uh, two, three weeks, and then I, I left home again. And I came to college, you know, just yeah, to know the place and see. But I stayed there and I finished my master. I have a master's in counseling. Mm. So, and I just said, when I finished there, mm-hmm. I didn't get a job because I didn't study in Mexico, my theology. Mm. So I get upset and I come back to the United States. <laughs> <laughs> the journey continues. <laughs> yeah, yes. You know, I get upset and, and I, I, I say, oh, okay, you know, I, I'm, my life will not depend on you guys. So, but back then I just came as, as, um, I get a, a tourist visa. So I came legal that time. And, and because coming legal, uh, a friend of mine uh, decided to help me. He, he asked me to support him in his church and he will transfer my tourist visa into a, uh, religious worker worker visa mm-hmm. and, and that's how I, I I start my process to become a, a legal resident and then a resident and then a US citizen mm. so um then <laughs> I love your adventurous I think, spirit. I, I, I think we're both kind of amazed at what you've been through to get to this point where you're at. Things right just now. look easy for you. You just you have that free, yeah, free flowing spirit, which is amazing. So where was that church? Uh, was it in California or? No, that was in New York. Oh, <laughs> in the Bronx. So how was it? <laughs> well, it, it was interesting because it was. Uh, I we got there two months before 9/11, mm. and that's where my 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 chaplain story starts. Uh, with that, we'll take a little break and we'll be right back. If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI Helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at NAMI.org. This is Sol Bam, and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Before the break, we were talking to Enoch, and we'll continue with that conversation. Enoch, how did your journey to becoming a hospice chaplain start? I think my, 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 my journey as a chaplain starts after 9-11. I didn't know nothing about chaplaincy. But after 9-11, I was an associate pastor in the Bronx, New York. And after 9-11, we support a lot of people, you know, family members, you know, we we were part of the the healing part. I didn't know the the concept of chaplaincy until the Church of God and the New York Theological Seminary, they got together and present a project uh, to train what they call community chaplaincy. 
But the basis of the community chaplaincy was training on uh, how to help people in crisis. That was ba basically um, what, what chaplaincy was. It was until I finished my doctoral degree that a friend of mine told me about clinical chaplaincy. And, and that's how I applied to become a, you know, I was in between. Do I go back to pastoral um, ministry or, or I switch to something else? So that's how my friend told me about the clinical chaplaincy and I applied uh, in Houston. And I was accepting it, and that's how I started. After finishing my my first year, my supervisor asked me to, if I want to, um, he asked me to do a second year. He said, you know, I think you will benefit if you do a second year. And I applied to the VA hospital here in Houston, and I did my second year. I think that was healing that, that because I started doing chaplaincy in New York in 9-11. By the time uh, when I finished my, 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 my second degree on chaplaincy, I was helping uh, young people who, who were coming with a stress post uh, with post-traumatic stress disorder coming from Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And after I finished there, so I was contracted by a hospice to become a, a, a hospice a hospice chaplain. And I stayed there for almost five years. And I'm still doing chaplaincy, uh, hospice chaplaincy in, in Houston. Now I just got a, a part-time that I will be dealing with palliative care. That, that was an area that I, I didn't know much about it, but this is helping me to understand the hospital setting, the hospice, and, and now the palliative care. So what did you love? What do you love about hospice ministry? I don't know, you remember the, the, the story that the Greek story that a man um was in the lake and the people start calling, save me, save me, save me. Remember mm -hmm. Homer, the story of Homer? Mm. That he get into the lake with a canoe and the people start claiming help, 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 help. I think in hospice is pretty much the same. Because most, most of the time, patients are about to die. Mm. And sometimes they need that little glimpse of hope to make it to their heaven. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, it's what, what I love, it, it is to be able to, to bring that little spark of hope that they need to make it to what they call heaven. And that hope comes in many ways. That hope comes in many ways, yes. Before recording the show, John and I were talking about, I was called out to a visit. Um, the patient was dying, but I was called out to help the family. But the family ended up not coming. So I went and I said a prayer for the patient, and the patient died. It's like that is exactly what he was waiting for. 
the reassurance and connection uh, with his God. So are there stories, you know, of hope like that, that that you love to do about hospice chaplaincy? The time that that happened with me was uh, after a weekend visit. I was on call and I visited this family. And, I mean, everybody was in kind of a, a high sense of anxiety because of you know, their loved one right there in their home uh, was was uh, actively dying. And so I went back on Monday morning just to check on the family and see everything that was going on. And the son was there, the um, wife was there, and they're kind of just sitting around watching. And I walk up to the the, the gentleman who was dying and... Just like Saul, I walked up, I went right up into his ear, and I said, uh, you know, God be with you. Uh, you're free. You can go now. Mm-hmm. It's okay. And with that, he dies. I mean, I still get goosebumps about that because it's just giving someone permission, being there, the, the, the sense that they, you've opened the door. You know, the door's open already. You've just given them yes. permission to step across that, that threshold That's right. into That's heaven. Right. And, and you know, you, you, I don't have that power. Only one who has that power is our God. Yes. And, and it just, it just it humbles you. That's right. I remember once I, I get to, to see the patient, and when I get to the patient, he was in company of her daughter. And, and I say, I'm the chaplain. And the daughter said, "Oh, we we don't have we 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 not we don't have faith." <laughs> and and I was like, "Okay, I think you have faith." And, and she said, "No, I, I don't have faith." And then uh, the patient said, "Yes, we have faith. We may not have a religious faith, but we do have faith. Otherwise, we won't be in the hospital because we have faith. We are here in the hospital." We have faith in doctors. We have faith in the medicine. And, you know, to make the long story short, they were agnostics. Mm-hmm. And, and then I asked him since when he was agnostic, and he said that since they, he lived his parents' home, you know, he wasn't interested in religion. But when he was a child, uh, her mother was Baptist, and his father was... Um, Methodist. So, uh, and, and, and I asked which one enjoy more, the Baptist or the, and she said, well, my mother was the most faithful go, going to church. So we enjoy more the Baptist. I enjoy more the Baptist. So when uh, he was, he was a, a psychology professor in one of the um, uh, universities in Austin. I, I, I don't remember there was a, University of Texas, I think that was the University of Texas. He uh, taught there for almost 30, 35 years. Hmm. So, but, but, but I asked him, you know, right now you decided to, to leave religion, to leave God aside, you know, which is okay, you know, because that's a decision that we as an adult people take. But if you had the opportunity to see your past and see your life in your childhood and see your life without God, which one was would you like to repeat? 
And he said, well, I think my childhood life. And I said, why? Because I was happier. And, and then I, I told him, well, I think you are right now, you are in that stage that you can um, retake a decision. How you want to live the rest of your life. Happy or unhappy, but that is your choice as an adult person. And, and, and I think even though I'm not proselytizing because we're not supposed to proselytize as a chaplain, <laughs> right? I just did what he loved to took, uh, uh, um, I left food for thought. Mm -hmm. I don't know what decision he made, but I'm pretty sure I will see him in heaven. Amen. That's a wonderful way to approach someone who is, you know, that is struggling with their faith at end of life. Because, uh, I mean, we all in this ministry run into folks who are like that and have struggled on how to approach it. So that was very uh, insightful. I've got to ask you a question here, Enoch, about uh, about your call to ministry and all of that. I want to go back to that for just a second, because when I look back at my life and I look back at how I was, how was I ended up in in chaplaincy? Because and especially in hospice chaplaincy, uh, it's a big circle. It's a big cycle that I went through. I was wondering if you had, if you look back right now at what has taken place in your life and you see where it is and how it is that you've ended up here and what it is that you see now that God has given you to help you to get this way. When I see back, I see God protecting me. Okay, good. And I think working as a hospice chaplain, I'm a protected minister because I don't have to deal with any organized religion, even though that I depend on my uh, endorsement and my uh, ordained minister license to my church. But, but I'm, I'm alone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I don't have to deal with that heavy uh, structure of an organized church. Uh, because sometimes I, I, I deal within that uh, organized church there is a lot of, a lot of pain. And, and I think God has, until now, God has been protecting me. I, I feel like I'm really the apple of God's size. <laughs> that's a, you that's feel special, nice. huh? That's nice. So uh, in one of our uh, Zoom meetings that we did earlier on in May, uh, you said that within your culture, people don't look at chaplaincy as as a form of pastoral ministry. Yes, that's right. And they do not have enough respect for it. That's right. Why do you think it's like that? Uh, I don't know if it will be so hard the way we all see it, because I, I didn't think about it to give the, this answer. I, I will uh, be straightforward in my answer. I think that there is, a, in a ministry formation, there is kind of brainwash. If you're not a pastor, you don't do nothing. Hmm. 
But Enoch, so you the, are the, a you are a pastor. But in the culture. Yes, but, 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 but saying, in my culture, if you're not, if you don't have okay. a church, you're okay. not a pastor. Okay, okay, I'm sorry. So, I just and and no matter how do you explain, you don't have a church. I'm an ordained pastor. Sure, but they don't care. You don't have a church. I don't have a church. But yet, I mean, this is my, you know, my. This is a hot hot point for me because. I I, I I I I can't understand it. I can't rationalize it because I just look at what we do. Because I think when I initially decided that I wanted to get out of parish ministry and then become a chaplain, I had that fear too that people would not look at me with the same view that I am a clergy person worthy yes. as one who is serving a church. And whenever people would ask me who I'm, you know, what church I serve, well, I'm serving I'm serving the church of the people who belong in our hospice. And 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 people kind of they don't have an answer for that. Maybe they don't they don't believe it or they don't or that it's you know I'm just you know giving them a, a line to tell them. But that's how I, I mean these people that I'm a, that I'm taking care of are, my, are part of my flock, and that's what a pastor is to do to take care of the flock. Yes, well I, I found my peace because we as a Seventh Day Adventist we believe in the physical church, but also we believe in the invisible church. Good, good. And when people ask me, what is your church? I say, you know, I go for the invisible church. Mm -hmm. Hmm. So how can we educate the community to understand and value chaplains in any capacity? I I think that that's a, a, a really hard work. I decided to stop teaching and I start leaving my ministry. Mm. Uh, I have minister who has who had tried to destroy my ministry. I decided to to not let them have the status quo of my ministry. When God called me to ministry, He called me, not called them. So that's why I say. My ministry is not determined for other people or for an organized uh, religion. My calling comes from God. So if the church wants me to help in their church, I can do it. But it's my, now I see it that way. That's my, my, my right to decide if I want to help the church. But the church cannot tell me what I should do with my ministry. Your faith journey and your life experiences seems to be just walking the same, we're walking the same path and have walked the same path in the past where we've, uh, I feel that, that there are so many similarities and here we are, different culturally, different locations, uh, but, we, but we still have the same understanding of who the God is that we work for, really, who we're called by to, to take care of God's children. Uh, yes, I'm. In, I, I. Where did you find that strength to to overcome those people who were trying to manipulate you, trying to maybe even harm you or disgrace you? How did you overcome that? And uh, where did you? Where did? How did God plant that peace into your understanding? 
I think I have my peace in the pain. Ah. I think having the pain had me to realize that the pain is I am responsible. I don't blame others about my pain. I took that responsibility. And, and, and now, because I don't want to have pain, it do not affect me what they think, what they do, or what they try to do with me. I ignore and, and I, you know, as, as I see myself as a free freelance minister. Uh-huh. Even though when I depend on my uh, professional license and my church organization, I I am free to to do. Sometimes I struggle because you know I lose my job and I don't have n- nobody to to support me. I was by myself, but I but I told my wife, you know, we're not by ourselves because God is still is with us. I lost my job on Friday. On Sunday, I submit like eight applications. On Monday, I have a job. <laughs> How that works, I cannot explain it. Yeah. I, I mm-hmm. cannot explain it. But but because I decided to take responsibility on everything. I don't blame others. Because it is to live with need energy. If I spend my energy blaming others, I will be a weak person. So um, that's, that's powerful. Uh, if from your, we're about to end. Uh, from your perspective, what are the qualities that make a good hospice chaplain? I think be aware who you are and who God is. You know, I, I think that that's the secret. Who you are, you know. Understand your story, understand your pain, understand your frustration, understand who you are, that you are an imperfect human being. But God will make it perfect every day. Because when you see a a passion, you understand that you are the child of God being sent to care for that person. That moment, everything else has no value. Well said, my friend. Thank you for your wisdom. I mean, this has been an incredible time that we've had together. Uh, I just want to thank you and uh, keep doing that good work, sir. Keep doing the good work. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It was a pleasure to, uh, to talk with you guys. All right, brother. Blessings to you. Yes. Thank you. That was Enoch Aguila. Thank you for listening. This podcast was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Joliet, Illinois. Audio Hive Podcasting is a studio dedicated to podcast recording, editing, and production. For more information, you can find us at audiohivepodcasting.com.